0: So, herzlich willkommen, liebes Publikum. Willkommen zu unserem mittlerweile... Ich glaube, sechsten Talk heute. Wir haben wieder eine Diskussion, diesmal Im, mit dem Titel Im Auftrag des Waldes bekommen Wälder, Flüsse und Seen mit der Digitalisierung ihrer eigenen Stimme. Bitte begrüßen Sie mit mir ganz herzlich Salome Egler, Anja Steglich, Nathan Williams, Jessica Druschku und unsere beiden Moderatorinnen Sarah Indra-Jungblut und Marisa Pettit.
1: erstmal Hallo an alle und herzlich willkommen. Wir freuen uns, dass Sie alle da seid und wir freuen uns auch selber hier zu sein. Beim Panel im Auftrag des Waldes bekommen Wälder, Flüsse und Seen mit der Digitalisierung eine eigene Stimme. Das Panel wird moderiert heute von mir, Marisa und meiner Kollegin Indra. Wir sind beide von reset.org. Im Programm steht, dass das Panel heute auf Deutsch stattfindet, aber wir haben uns ähm, entschieden, äh, da das Thema sehr international ist und ähm, die Teilnehmer, also die Experten, die wir eingeladen haben, auch international sind und wir auch, ähm, dass wir das auf so eine deutsch-englische Mischung machen werden ähm, mit ähm, Übersetzungen bei Bedarf und so weiter und wir hoffen, dass alle sich ähm, wohl damit fühlen. Also erstmal kurz zu uns: Was ist Reset.org? Reset ist eine Nachhaltigkeitsplattform, das sich seit über zehn Jahren dem Thema Digital for good ähm, gewidmet hat. Also bei uns steht im Fokus die Schnittstelle zwischen ähm, also die Schnittstelle. Digitalisierung trifft Nachhaltigkeit. Ähm, wir berichten täglich über grüne, soziale und digitale Lösungen für eine zukunftsfähige Welt, Und bleiben dabei lösungsorientiert, unabhängig und kritisch. Ähm, die Themen Digitalisierung und Nachhaltigkeit sind finden wir präsenter als je zuvor, und wir werden immer mehr darin bestätigt, ähm, wie wichtig unsere, also diese Arbeit ist. Und ähm, geführt wird sie auch immer wichtiger, weil <lacht> ja,
2: dass, dass wir ein gewaltiges Problem haben, ist glaube ich mittlerweile offensichtlich. Ähm, etwas dramatisch formuliert, aber leider ist es einfach, was uns die Studien erzählen, genau so. Unser Planet stirbt, Grad für Grad, Art für Art. Das hat auch wieder der neueste Biodiversitätsreport, der vor ein paar Tagen von der UNO veröffentlicht wurde, bestätigt, dass wir, also mit sehr dramatischen Zahlen auch belegt, dass wir eigentlich, dass gerade die Gesundheit aller unserer Ökosysteme, dieses Planeten schneller als jemals zuvor sich verschlechtert und dass wir als Menschen eigentlich gerade dabei sind, als Verursacher des sechsten großen Massensterbens in die Geschichte einzugehen. Doch bei allem Fatalismus ist es auf der anderen Seite natürlich auch so, dass auch da sich viele Studien einigen sind, wir haben noch einen Handlungsspielraum, wir können noch etwas tun, um den totalen Kollaps unserer Ökosysteme Vielleicht nicht nicht mehr abzuwenden, aber zumindest ähm, ähm, etwas abzumildern. Ähm, Aber die Bedingung dafür ist, dass wir jetzt sofort wirksame und weitreichende Maßnahmen ergreifen. Auch wenn es immer wieder kleine Hoffnungsschimmer gibt, ist es einfach immer noch so, dass Regierungen weltweit nicht erkennen lassen, dass sie wirklich bereit sind, das Erforderliche zu tun und wirklich umfassende Maßnahmen zu ergreifen. Und umso wichtiger ist es auch tatsächlich, dass wir als G- Zivilgesellschaft mehr Druck ausüben. Und ich muss zugeben, dass ich auch auch sehr persönlich, gerade sehr begeistert sehe, wie viel Bewegung in der Sache ist, dass auch neue Bewegungen entstehen, also ähm, allen voran auch die Fridays-for-Future-Bewegung. Ich bin großer Fan von ähm, der Art des Protestes, ähm, der zivile Ungehorsam, wie es ähm, Extinction Rebellion gerade auch macht. Kann ich auch sehr empfehlen, sich da mal äh, zu scha- ähm, anzuschauen, was sie machen und vielleicht zu beteiligen. Und bestimmt nicht nur Ihnen, aber unter anderem auch, ist es diesen Bewegungen auch zu verdanken, dass wir immerhin ernsthaft zum ersten Mal über eine CO2-Steuer sprechen und dass mittlerweile einige Städte weltweit den Klimanotstand ausgerufen haben. Es gibt immer noch eine andere große Entwicklung und das ist die Digitalisierung, die ist genauso unaufhaltsam. Und umso wichtiger ist es uns eigentlich die Digitalisierung als Verbündeten mit ins Boot zu holen und sie ökologisch, sozial und sinnvoll zu gestalten, Und auch zu nutzen für unsere Zwecke. Genau, deswegen sind wir heute hier. Wir haben einige Gäste eingeladen, die sich aufgemacht haben und die ähm, an Projekten arbeiten mit unterschiedlichen Ausrichtungen, um bessere, wirksamere Schutzsysteme für unsere Ökosysteme bereitzustellen.
1: Okay, so we like invite our three guests up on stage with us now.
2: Ah, es, es sind nur drei Gäste heute. Ah. Genau, ähm, weil Salome hat mich heute leider mit einer ähm, sehr sehr äh, erkälteten Stimme angerufen und hat ähm, abgesagt. Sie lässt sehr schön grüßen. Sie findet es sehr schade nicht hier zu sein. Ähm, Aber ich glaube, wir haben auf jeden Fall
1: <lacht> trotzdem ein sehr volles Programm. Nathan, Jessica, Anja, come and join us. Um, vielleicht könntet ihr euch einmal kurz vorstellen um, und sagen, wer ihr seid und was ihr macht, woran ihr arbeitet. Also maybe you could just introduce yourselves, say who you are, say what you're working on, just tell us a bit about yourselves.
3: I'll go first. Uh, hi everyone, I'm Jess. I am a mechanical engineer currently working at the Leibniz Institute of freshwater, um, uh, of freshwater Inland Fisheries and Freshwater Ecology. Um, it's a research, in, research institute here in Berlin. And I'm going to be assisting in field work, installing sensors on the Viosa River in Albania. So helping them with field work. And I'm also an organizer of the Student for Rivers Camp, which is a week-long gathering on the Socha River the first week of July. And we're basically organizing expert um, academic lectures, workshops, and an overnight rafting experience on the Socha River for students. It is the kickoff of our River Intellectuals Network, which is basically, (laughs) some more explanation, basically we are organizing a network of students, experts, et cetera, of people that want to dedicate their theses, Projects, etc., to river conservation. And this is an initiative of the Balkan River Defense. Um, so with that being said, I'm also a river intellectual. I am applying for grant funding for my own project to develop a smart water turbidity sensor. Um, and I'm a whitewater kayaker. Yeah.
4: <laughs> my name is Nathan Williams. I'm the founder and CEO of MindSpider. And we are using blockchain to track responsibly sourced metals and raw materials in the supply chain. So, essentially, we want to make sure that the gold in your jewelry or the cobalt in your smartphone is not funding slavery, child labor, uh, environmental damage in at-risk areas of the world, armed conflict, and the way we do it is we create digital certificates that are stored on the blockchain. So if you're familiar with blockchain, it basically allows you to create digital objects that cannot be copied or faked or forged. And so we use it to create digital certificates that you know are legitimate and real and keep track of who, uh, a chain of custody of who held it. And this allows companies purchasing their metal and manufacturing their, uh, their products to know more detail about the conditions under which their raw materials were produced.
5: Ich mache das mal in Deutsch. Mein Name ist Anja Steglich. Ich bin Landschaftsarchitektin, lebe und arbeite hier in Berlin und viel im wissenschaftlichen Bereich und bin heute hier, weil ich ein Projekt begleite für Inter3. Das ist ein Forschungsprojekt was versucht herauszufinden, inwieweit die Digitalisierung es ermöglicht, an Wäldern nicht eine eigene Stimme zu geben, aber vielleicht mittels digitaler Tools ähm, ein Gefühl dafür zu bekommen, was uns der Wald wert ist. Und an dieser Stelle im Grunde genommen eigentlich vielleicht auch als Gesellschaft irgendwie das herauszufinden für die nächsten Jahre, was inra ganz schön anmoderiert hat, im Grunde genommen war, wie kann es gehen, sozusagen dieser sechsten Phase zu entkommen oder Entwaldung in dieser Welt irgendwie aufzuhalten am also Ursprünglich war das ein Kunstprojekt, wir versuchen sozusagen mit der Kunst gemeinsam in den gesellschaftlichen Diskurs zu gehen. Darüber hinaus, über dieses Waldprojekt, interessieren mich gebäudeintegrierte Farmwirtschaft, also all das, was ähm, mit Landschaft zu tun hat, in der Stadt ein bisschen technisch orientiert ist, ganz viel mit ähm, Datenmanagement und Datenbasis zu tun hat. Ich glaube, das ist so die größte Schnittstelle und freue ich mich einfach, heute mit Ihnen hier zu sein und mit Ihnen darüber zu diskutieren, ob das ein Weg sein kann, der richtig oder falsch ist.
1: Ja, wir wollten jetzt ein bisschen mehr in die Tiefe gehen und dann würden wir gern erstmal bei Jess anfangen, ein paar Fragen zu deinen Projekten, zu deinen Arbeiten stellen. So Jess, we're just gonna start with you, ask a few more questions. Uh, detailed questions. So you said you're part of a group called the Balkan River Defence, working to protect um, wild rivers in the Balkans. Could you explain exactly what the environmental issue is in that part of the world and what you're doing to help protect or conserve the rivers in that region?
3: Yeah, so basically right now the threat in the Balkan region is the unsustainable and reckless construction of 2,700 hydropower dams in the next decade in the Balkan region, and a lot of these dams are planned in national parks. Um, So for example two weeks ago I was in Romania where we saw a diversion dam being built and if you don't know what a diversion dam is basically it's a dam without turbines. So for some reason the hydropower company decides you know this river there we're not going to invest money for turbines here because it's not worth it. Um, So what they do is instead they build a tunnel to divert the water to a um, reservoir that they've already built. So the little bit of water that goes downstream to the locals is then diverted to a hydropower dam that they already built, to the turbines that are already there. And this was built in a Natura 2000 site, which says clearly this is not allowed in... Like, diversion dams are not allowed in Natura 2000 site. Yet this is happening, and it will probably continue to happen, even though it's not allowed. Um, So the... A lot of these dams are actually funded by foreign investors who are taking advantage of the Balkans' um, sensitive political climate, and they are labeling this as helping the underdeveloped part of Europe. Yet, this energy, this electricity that it's produced doesn't go to the people there. It comes back to us here, and the people there rely on fly fishing, on water and they don't get any of that. So what we're doing, we're a very small organization, we're basically a group of kayakers, (laughs) and some scientists, and we go, and we um, are also, a lot of us are from the Balkan region, and we go and we speak to the locals there, and who really feel um, at a loss. They come from a um, communist mindset where they feel like they don't have power in their own country, Um, and we basically just help them speak with their mayor and have a voice. And we also do this a lot via social media.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay, and you also mentioned um, that you yourself are working on a sensor. Mm -hmm. Um, So what exactly... Could you explain a bit more about how that sensor is working, what data it's actually collecting, and how that also helps protect, maybe by helping the river communicate in the way that you're communicating with people in the mayor?
3: Yeah, so... Basically, um, the Balkans are a hotspot of ecological value. And in general, if you can show that a river has high ecological value, you have a higher chance of the dam not being built. Um, So the particular problem that I decided to focus on is suspended sediment transport. Um, So suspended sediment basically is an important parameter to follow in rivers because if you build a dam, sediment will build up in the dam the vol- volume of the reservoir will become smaller and the water will then flood over the reservoir and destroy even more wetland and even more um, uh, plants and trees. And then when these plants and trees decompose, they release more and more carbon dioxide and methane. So this is a big problem and tracking suspended sediment is an important um, parameter, just one out of the many um, So basically, what I'm doing is I'm focusing on building a cheap turbidity sensor. And what turbidity is, is basically it measures the cloudiness of water. And you can um, calibrate turbidity to give you suspended sediment. Um, So the way that expensive sensors do this is basically it's the simple principle of light scatter. (laughs) So you have a monochromatic light beam, depending on the amount of sediment in your water, it will scatter the light. And then you have a series of detectors around your light beam, measuring the amount of backscattered light. Um, And so these sensors currently cost on the order of 10,000 euros. And the best part is that you can actually get uh, one for five euros and it goes into your dishwasher. So what I'm focusing on, obviously it's not as accurate, so what I'm focusing on right now is trying to play around with the light source and detector and to obtain more accurate reading measurement.
1: Yeah. Okay, and you mentioned there, it's quite clear, that you're working on one that's cheaper. Uh So it sounds like um, the fact that the technology is often very expensive is a barrier to it being applied in that field in the Balkans. Um, to what extent is financial accessibility and tech just being very expensive a barrier when it comes to river conservation? Or are there other barriers that you see as being bigger than price and money?
3: So there are definitely other barriers. I would say that the financial barrier is definitely a big one because... Having access to cheaper sensors not only gives students and researchers from institutes all over the world access to this information, but it could also give um, access to this information to citizen scientists that want to take river conservation into their own hands. And then additionally, having cheaper sensors, you can get new types of data. So with one sense, well, you know, if you find 10,000 euros and you buy one sensor, it just gives you one reading in one part of the river, but... If you can get cheaper sensors, you can distribute them along the river system and really get a dynamics um, for where the sediment is going throughout the um, different seasons. Um, And then another barrier I would say that's quite an important one is the fact that hydropower companies are the ones paying environmental assessment agencies for the environmental assessment. And yeah, this is a conflict of interest. Yeah. (laughs)
1: Thanks so much. Um, we're going to move on to Nathan for some. Hello. More direct questions. Hello. Um, okay. So you said you're using you're using blockchain.
4: We are using blockchain
1: to track shipments of metals. Yes. As they tr- travel through like very long supply chains. You said all the way from the mine to your jewelry or your phone. Mm-hmm. Um, how exactly do you link? a digital file to a raw material, like rocks or metal that have just come out of a mine, especially as they're changing in uh, sort of, they're being processed and being mixed with other things as it goes along. Could you explain in a bit more detail so that we can understand um, how the whole process is and who is involved along the way and
4: tracing? Sure, Uh, the the way that we do that is carefully. Um, Essentially, The method that you use to do the tracking depends on the specific problem you're trying to solve at each section of the supply chain. So anything I give you is going to be sort of a broad view and the actual way is is quite detailed. But in general, there are sort of two things going on with the metals in the supply chain. One, you can have a problem of uh, metals coming from a bad source or having incidents of negative behavior, child labor, human rights abuses, being laundered in. And so you want to protect against that. And then the second thing that can be happening is a problem at the beginning or the end of the supply chain when you're first gathering the data. So in order to make sure that the metal doesn't change or that you don't add in any untoward or bad metal, so to speak, you can just keep track of a shipment number, Uh, So we use a QR code, but uh, uh, our system can handle anything, an RFID tag, a a little um, uh, Internet of Things device, a sensor. Uh, But the important thing is that you're gathering data at the beginning on where the shipment is. And then the second thing you want to gather is the mass. How much does it weigh? So what this lets you do is it allows you to both track a shipment and then... Once the shipment gets processed, you can treat it like green energy on the electrical grid. Now, if you buy green energy tomorrow, it'll come to your house still mixed with coal and nuclear power, but you know your money is traceable to the green energy company. And sometimes that's good enough to know that your money has gone and funded responsible mining practices. Again, it depends on the problem, depends on the place, but this is a, uh, this is our starting point uh, of saying, okay, well, we know that these five companies all got mixed together and then it produced a ton of metal that we are then paying for. And so I know that my money went to the, the right source. Does that make sense, more or less?
1: Yeah. Well, if it doesn't, we have time for questions at the end and go <laughs> a bit deeper. Um, you mentioned there and also at the beginning that you're ensuring more responsible mineral sourcing in the sense of trying to remove or reduce the amount of conflict minerals, so not sourcing um, metals from mines that are maybe owned by armed groups or that are using child labour, slave labour that mm-hmm. have negative social impacts Correct. you mentioned briefly also environmentally um, sustainable mining what are the Uh, How how do you ensure that the mining is carried out in an environmentally sustainable way? What are the ecological standards that you can track? And maybe a slightly bigger question. (laughs) Um, What is environmentally sustainable mining for Minespider? What does that
4: look like? It depends. So uh, all of my my answers are going to be it depends. But uh, when we got started, for example, we're right now doing a pilot project with Volkswagen. And what Volkswagen was interested in was knowing where their lead in their lead-acid batteries is coming from, and it was because there was uh, an article in Der Spiegel uh, a number of months ago that they bought lead uh, batteries from someone who bought from someone who bought from someone who bought from someone who who was recycling irresponsibly, and there was lead poisoning in the entire town. And this is something that if they would have known that this company was in their supply chain, they could have done a check. They could have known it, but because they didn't, they found out from the newspaper. And no one wants that. They don't want it. We don't want it. And so when we're talking environmental damage, we're not saying that MindSpider is going out and certifying all of these companies uh, and making sure that they're acting in accordance to our wishes. Quite the opposite. What we are doing is we are going and saying, you're a company that is producing metal, other people are going to be checking on you. Other companies are going to be coming and doing assessments. Uh, you're going to get audits, and, uh, and you can have self-assessment questionnaires, and you upload those and sell it along with your mineral shipments. That way, when uh, when car company or, or cell phone company buys the metal or buys the components, they can go, look, we see that you've done these questionnaires. We see that KPMG visited you or, or that you have an official license from the government. Is that good enough for us? If it's not, we we now know that we can go back and say, look, we want better data or we want more quality control. So it puts the responsibility back on the company but it gives them the power to actually do that assessment. Mm-hmm. And our view is that I, I shouldn't be the police. MindSpider shouldn't be the police. We should be the, the company that enables the ones that want to be good to be good.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, it's Often I think the case that um, having this kind of certification, carrying out this due diligence, um, ensuring that these things are done the way they should be, also entails extra cost sometimes for the um, suppliers. You mentioned Volkswagen. Um, Is there again, as I asked Jess, is there a financial barrier there at all for maybe smaller companies to introduce this kind of blockchain system, blockchain
4: tracing? This was something we thought about right at the beginning, uh, that if you have additional requirements, the big companies can pay, the smaller companies can't, and you push the small companies out of the ecosystem. And this is a problem for mining because there are 200 million people who are individual artisanal miners and their, their livelihood is to go gold panning and to, and to make that work, and it's a real problem. And no one in the mining industry wants to see them pushed out, but at the same time, there's almost a negative stigma that they are the source of the problem because it's easy to sort of pin the blame on them. Um, From our point of view, incentives make a difference. So if you're requiring more due diligence, if you're requiring data to be collected, that's a cost. Who pays for it? The miners. And if the miner pays for it, then they have extra costs, and so they have a negative incentive to participate. So if someone comes along and says, I'll give you a 30% money laundering bonus to sell illegally to me, what are they going to do? So our approach is to say, well, if you can upload this data into a digital certificate, that's an asset. You can sell that. If you can sell it, then you get income from it, and that reduces the, the price that you pay and spreads the cost up the supply chain. Similarly, even with large companies, they don't care about an extra revenue stream from data. That's not their business. But what they do care about is not being visited by auditors six or seven or ten times in a year. Because the one the big companies that want to be good end up being visited by auditors constantly. And so it actually makes it easier for the irresponsible companies or the companies that don't care. So... This was the idea that you would do the audits fewer times, but have this uh, this unchangeable version of the data, so that so that it can be passed along with the, the shipments of the metal. So, uh, basically, to reduce the burden, uh, the more responsible that you are.
1: Okay. Thanks. Uh, switch to German. Yes. <laughs> okay. Machen wir auf Deutsch weiter.
2: Ähm, Anja, ich würde dich gerne fragen, ihr habt ja im Rahmen von dem Projekt Terra 1 eine Blockchain entwickelt, mit der sich ein Wald eigentlich selbst verwalten kann. Das war die Idee. Wie wie kann ich mir das genau vorstellen, diesen diesen digitalisierten Wald? Und vor allem, was ist eigentlich das Problem, worauf ihr damit
5: die Antwort Mhm. gegeben habt? Ähm, Also Terra 1 ist ein Folgeprojekt von einem künstlerischen Projekt, das heißt Terra Zero. Und dieses Künstlerkollektiv hat den digitalen Wald sozusagen kreiert. Die stellen in die Welten sagen, es ist möglich, einen Wald als digitalen Zwilling so eigenverantwortlich zu programmieren via Blockchain, dass er, das lassen die Künstler natürlich offen, sich abholzt oder aufforstet von allein. Ähm, große philosophische Fragestellung. Wir haben in Terra 1 versucht, mit diesen Künstlern gemeinsam daraus, ich sage jetzt mal, Wissenschaft und Diskurs zu machen und eigentlich ein Stück zurückzurudern. Ähm, Dieser Wald ließe sich über Blockchain schreiben, aber wir fragen, was schreibt man da überhaupt rein? Das heißt, wir setzen ein bisschen früher an, als zu tracken. Wir fragen tatsächlich, okay, wem gehört Wald? Wer hat diese Datenhoheit und wie geht er damit um? Wenn man sich anschaut, wie Digitalisierung in der Forstwirtschaft stattfindet, brauche ich einen Wald, um digitale Werkzeuge zu bekommen. Es gibt aber auch andere Akteure rund um den Wald, wie Wildnispädagogen, Naturschutzorganisationen. Und zwischen diesen vielen Akteuren gibt es riesige Gräben. Die haben komplett unterschiedliche Interessen und das ist ein großes Problem, in der Waldwirtschaft generell, im kleinen sozusagen Maßstab und auch im globalen Maßstab. Und wir versuchen in Terra 1 genau darüber zu sprechen. Ist die Digitalisierung auf der einen Seite vielleicht ein Tool? um Forstwirtschaft effizienter zu machen, um sozusagen das, was bisher Forstwirte mit Karte eintragen, über Jahre dokumentieren, Zuwachsraten, die Entwicklung des Waldes, um ihn beschreiben zu können, welchen welchem Zustand ist er, ähm, das im Grunde genommen über eine Digitalisierung besser zu machen und festzuschreiben und auch in dem Zuge dann einfach anderen Menschen in die Hand zu geben und damit einfach diese Entscheidungsgewalt über den Wald einfach größer zu machen. Das ist das Anliegen von Tara 1. Das ist sozusagen, ähm, es geht nicht mehr wirklich um die Selbstverwaltung des Waldes. Die Frage liegt dahinter und ich finde, die ist auch super aktuell. Braucht er uns überhaupt? Ähm, es geht eigentlich darum, viel mehr in der Realität darüber zu diskutieren, wer sind die Stakeholder und welche dieser Stakeholder haben Zugang zu Daten und wie können sie mit denen umgehen. Und wir stehen da total am Anfang, das will ich ganz ehrlich zugeben, es ist ein ähm, Projekt, was vom Bundesministerium für Bildung und Forschung gefördert wird. Es ist ganz schwer, Interessenten dazu für, dazu für finden, dafür zu finden. Und ich glaube, das liegt daran, dass man in Terra 1 erkennen kann, wie vielfältig Waldwirtschaft ist und man sich bewusst werden muss, was bedeutet der überhaupt. Und das ist der Schritt vor der Digitalisierung. Und das hat ganz viel damit zu tun, wie die Datenhoheit um den Wald organisiert ist, sowohl hier ähm, in diesen Ländern als auch global. Ich meine, wenn wir im globalen Maßstab gucken, Welche Teile der Welt entwaldet werden, hat es ganz viel damit zu tun, dass sie sozusagen überhaupt nicht zugänglich sind und einfach Beispiel Brasilien sozusagen politische Kräfte an die Macht kommen, die sich in feuchten Dreck darum kehren, was man da jahrelang als Weltgemeinschaft erarbeitet hat und ich glaube, das ist ein riesen Bestandteil der Debatte, also wir wollen das sozusagen ganz weit öffnen. Und welche ähm, Instrumente es da geben kann und welche Geschäftsmodelle, ähnlich wie MindSpider, das ist auch Anliegen von Terra1, darüber zu diskutieren und einzuladen, dafür was zu entwickeln. Wir haben ähm, Forest Labs und wir machen ein Serious Game, die das unterstützen und wollen als drittes Format auch zum Ende des Projektes ein Hackathon machen, wo es genau darum gehen wird, das ein bisschen auszurollen. Es geht sozusagen nicht mehr um den selbstverwalteten Wald, sondern eigentlich darum, miteinander zu diskutieren, was bedeutet uns der Wald und wie sieht der Wald der Zukunft aus? Und darüber steht einerseits die Digitalisierung, aber auch ganz klar der Begriff der Bioökonomie, der ja nochmal sozusagen den Wald unter Druck setzt. Wenn wir regenerativ wirtschaften, wird Holz eine der Ressourcen der Wirtschaft werden. Im doppelten Sinne sozusagen als fossiler Energieträger, aber auch als Rohstofflieferant. Und an der Stelle gerät der Wald einfach oder die Ressource Wald immer mehr unter Druck.
2: Also das heißt, ihr seid eigentlich dann nochmal einen kompletten Schritt zurückgerudert und seid jetzt eigentlich eher auf so einer... Metaebene, aber habt ihr auch, also sollen am Ende auch konkrete Werkzeuge daraus entwickelt werden aus eurem, es ist ja eher ein sehr prozesshafter, oder ein Prozess, den ihr ja eigentlich anstoßt, wenn ich dich richtig verstehe, aber gibt es, also was, gibt es ganz klare Fragestellungen, die ihr jetzt schon habt und gibt es irgendwie auch was, wo ihr sagt, das ist irgendwie so, da wollen wir hinkommen, oder?
5: Also wir sind nicht zurückgerudert, wir haben sozusagen einfach Terra Zero, Terra Zero sein lassen und ich lade jeden ein, sich die Seite anzuschauen, es ist fantastisch, dieser Vision zu folgen. Terra 1 äh, hat verschiedene, ich sag mal eine Plattform, also wir haben eine Online-Plattform, da kann man einfach sagen, was der Wald bedeutet, das ist ziemlich Low-Level, mhm. sich am Diskurs beteiligen. Wir haben diese Forest Labs, wo wir versuchen, im Wald direkt, das nächste findet im Stadtwald Lübeck statt, mit Leuten darüber zu diskutieren und sich Digitalisierung im Wald mal anzuschauen. Was heißt es, Zuwachsraten digital zu erfassen? Wie sieht so eine Drohne aus, über den Wald fliegt und wieso und was sagt der Forstwirt dazu, was das für ein Potenzial hat überhaupt, weil der bricht es ganz stark runter. Darum geht's im Forest Lab und es entsteht ein Serious Game, was ursprünglich ähm, eigentlich was mit Blockchain zu tun haben wollte. Auch da haben wir uns sozusagen ein bisschen neu aufgestellt und laden eigentlich die Spieler eher dazu ein, diese Vielfalt an Wertvorstellungen. Wie wichtig ist mir Naturschutz im Vergleich zu einem günstigen Holzpreis beispielsweise oder ähm, im Grunde genommen einfach diese verschiedenen Konflikte, die da drin liegen, spielerisch zu erfahren und sich da selbst so ein bisschen auf den Prüfstand zu stellen. Okay, der Holzpreis ist mir so wichtig, dass mir vielleicht, ähm, dass mir ich an der Biodiversität ein bisschen schrauben könnte. Oder aber ich sag nee, ich habe den Bericht gelesen, es geht verdammt nochmal um Biodiversität, der Holzpreis muss hoch sein. Und mit diesem Spiel kann man sich da so ein bisschen durch die Welt der Holz- und Forstwirtschaft ähm, switchen und anlernen, landet dann am Ende bei einem Szenario, wo man so ein bisschen eingeteilt wird, wo befindet man sich auf einer Skala von verschiedenen Vertretern der Gesellschaft und kriegt auch ein Bild davon, wie die anderen voten. Und wir haben das so gemacht, dass wir denken, dieser Diskurs ist elementar wichtig, einfach weil es darum geht, sozusagen eine Haltung dazu zu entwickeln und die Digitalisierung ist eine Aufforderung dazu, eine Haltung zu entwickeln und einfach auf einer breiten Basis darüber zu diskutieren. Und ähm, das Serious Game, ähm,
2: wie kann ich mir das vorstellen, wie kann ich dazu Mitspieler werden?
5: indem man einfach auf die Homepage geht. Ich glaube, es ist sogar schon, es ist glaube ich noch nicht online, weil es noch nicht hübsch genug ist, Er geht in den nächsten 14 Tagen online und dann kann man sich da sozusagen einfach durchklicken. Es gibt eine Kontaktadresse, man kann uns anrufen, man kann da seine Meinung hinterlassen, man kann Bilder schicken, das ist total offen und im Grunde genommen einfach relativ wenig vorstrukturiert, weil wir hoffen, dass wir einfach viele Leute erreichen und sich das von selbst verstetigen wird. Es ist halt Anliegen, das nicht vorzugeben, sondern wirklich zum Diskurs einzuladen. Terra1.org ist die Adresse, Terra0 ist da verlinkt. Ich glaube, das ist auch alles auf der Seite des Panels und da ist auch ein Link zum Forest Lab am 27. Mai in Lübeck. Okay,
2: vielen Dank. Dann ähm, wollen wir noch mal öffnen. Ja? Wir, haben, wir haben noch eine Frage an euch alle vorbereitet und dann würden wir gerne euch alle einladen,
1: ähm, eure Fragen zu stellen. Also ja, letzte Frage in die Runde. Einmal auf Deutsch und dann auf Englisch. Also um auf den Namen dieser Session ähm, zurückzukommen. Was glaubt ihr, können digitale Technologien wirklich zu einem guten Werkzeug werden, um die Rechte der Natur zu sichern und Ökosystemen eine Stimme zu geben? Ihnen erlauben sozusagen mit uns zu kommunizieren? Um, referring back to the name of the panel event. Last question to everybody. Um, to what extent do you see Tech as a tool, so sense, using sensors, collecting data, using blockchain, whatever, um, how do you see that as a tool to ensure the rights of nature, um, give ecosystems a voice, and allow them to communicate with us? Anyone's free to answer in any language.
4: <laughs> I think this is the most interesting question. As a blockchain person, uh, blockchain, is, uh, blockchain is really a tool about decentralizing, about changing who is responsible and who has power in a system. And usually we think of it as, okay, well, we can maybe exchange money without a central bank, but here's a, a big question, is what if nature had rights? What if they had autonomy? What if, they, what if nature could hold money? Uh, with blockchain, you can essentially create a computer program that can hold money and exchange money based on certain rules. So what if you had a computer program that had money that was reading data from sensors in a river that if the uh, that if someone built a dam it would automatically hire a lawyer to go and defend it hmm. without the interference or intervention of a person. What if you had trees hmm. that were in a forested area that had their own resources that had sensors that if someone came and decided to cut them down or what have it, there would be an automatic repercussion.
5: Yeah. They deserve themselves. Mm-hmm.
4: It's an interesting thought because it cha- Like, normally, when we think of rights, we think of how it affects humans. If a river stops running, it's the people in the village who are affected. But what if we started thinking, what if there's no village? What if the, we just care about if the river has a, uh, if nature has a right to exist, and the animals in the area have a right to propagate, and so the, the river should remain? It's a, it's a new way of thinking about this, and whether or not the technology actually gets to the point of, of implementing that crazy out-of-the-box solution of, uh, of giving a tree some money. Uh, The fact that we can start thinking about this because the technology could enable it is an interesting and important start.
5: Ich beantworte das auch auf Deutsch. Ich glaube, Flüsse und Wälder haben da eigene Stimme und ich glaube, es geht darum, dass wir verstehen, dass es so ist. Und ich glaube, die Digitalisierung hilft uns genau an der Stelle, das zu verstehen. Sie hilft uns, weil wir die Vision haben können, es nimmt uns irgendjemand ab. Aber ich glaube, ähm, da wir keine schmerzfreien Wesen sind und ich glaube, lernfähig sind, ähm, hat das nichts mit Digitalisierung zu tun, dass es diese Stimme gibt. Aber ich die, die, glaube, die Digitalisierung ist ein Tool, dass wir verstehen, wie komplex das sein kann und wie eigendynamisch diese Systeme sind. Und ich glaube, an der Stelle besteht sozusagen der, das größte Potenzial zu lernen.
3: Um, I feel like nature connects or um, communicates in two different ways. The first one would be from the microbiological to the ecological or systems function level where you could read what they're saying through data that we obtain, um, which we can do via sensors. And then the other method is through the connection that people have with nature which then we can share through social media, through whatever, documenting our experience, which is what we're also doing with the Balkan River Defence.
4: I had one other thought, uh, because I I talked about nature having a voice or or rights with rivers or or, or with forestry, but what about my own industry? Um, There's actually been a... Idea that has been going around the mining industry for uh, uh, maybe a year or two now, uh, specifically with the gold industry. What do you do with gold? Well, you take it out of the ground, you make it shiny, and then you hide it back underground and trade the rights to it. It Seems like a bit of a waste. Why not leave it underground and keep a... uh, Uh, do studies to see how much there is and just trade the rights. And the thing is with the technology, with the the sensors of seeing what's there and monitoring over top, what you can do is you can create a computer program that will hold enough money to start a mine to dig it up. And as long as the people who are trading the rights on that gold agree to keep it underground then it can still hold the value of the gold, maybe reduced by the cost to dig it up. And then you haven't hurt the environment. You have had the, the, the ability to enact with the gold. I mean, how much are you gonna interact with the gold that you've invested in anyway? So these are, these are the, the crazy things that, you, but you start to think like, why are we doing this this way? Because we all, always have. What does this technology enable us to do? think outside the box.
1: Yeah, it sounds like this question has given you an idea for maybe three more startups doing this. <laughs> great. Um, yeah. Yeah. Gibt es äh,
2: gibt es Fragen? Ich glaube, wir können es einfach reinrufen, oder?
0: Seite.
2: <laughs> yeah?
0: Ja? Okay. Am besten wäre es wenn es Fragen aus dem Publikum gibt. Ich komme Ihnen entgegen, Sie kommen mir entgegen oder aus der zweiten Reihe schaffe ich es auch noch so. Dann haben wir für die Audioaufnahme für später alles drauf. Dankeschön. Uh, thanks a lot uh, for this very interesting uh, discussion and the examples. What I'm interested in is, um, do you use the uh, framework of ecosystem services in your projects? And if yes, could you reflect a bit on... Um, Maybe the problems that come up in the valuation of nature, so assigning nature and natural services a monetary value and making it, them into a tradable commodity, so from resources to uh, rivers-producing energy to woods-producing uh, resources. Um, do you encounter specific problems there in your project or what are your reflections, specific reflections on this? Thanks.
5: I can start. We don't use um, that model actually, but I think um, it's similar to to the blockchain. So the the problem is the same. You have to name the value, um, but the blockchain um, or with the ecosystem services, someone. Um, Gives the name to the value. I think blockchain is much more transparent and participatory. So someone can value something and then it appears in the blockchain, for instance, and that's maybe there's the difference. But in, um, I think the artists from Terra Zero, they were quite inspired from that, um, from the ecosystem services. And they refer to it, and then they refer to the law the nature has, but um, within our project, we don't work with it. But I think there is a huge potential um, that the blockchain is much more out of the scientific community than the ecosystem services. Giptism. <laughs> Please, go ahead.
3: Um, so... Um, the biggest problem that I see i mean i 'm an engineer, so I hang out with a lot of engineers, and that 's starting to change thankfully. Um, but the biggest thing that I encounter when speaking with engineers is it 's very you know straightforward you know um, how much carbon dioxide does it release, and how much energy do we get from it it 's a very black and white way to look at things. Um, if you start to speak to a biologist, you realize they have I don't have the sense that an ecologist has for how much value biodiversity has. I don't understand it, but that's why it's so important to speak with people outside of your field. And they have this sense. They understand the value that it brings. What kind of value does it bring? Well, for example, in a very biodiverse river system, if, you know, three degrees um, temperature rise in our atmosphere, the ecosystem is able to adapt to the temperature rise. Um, And that is a significant ecosystem service that is, you know, it's important and it allows the environment to adapt to our changing climate. So there's a lot of different things to look at. I'm not sure if I answered your question properly, but (laughs) yeah.
5: Maybe just um, one shot, because you, you mentioned it, um, we had a discussion with someone from the forestry, and he said exactly that, that the big problem is that we are not able to make that scenarios, that there is no way to um, imagine biodiversity or the tipping point. It's all our imagination and how it really will be, this is not clear yeah. and the digitalization
4: will not change that. And. Also the power of the people making decisions, right? So if you're you're monetizing or if you're putting a value on these externalities of uh, how much biodiversity, uh, how many dollars or or euros that's worth, the question is who pays for it and do they value it the same? It's one thing if I go in and say, well, look, it costs $15 per per kilogram of carbon, and then everyone says, well, no, we're just not going to use that. Uh, You know, there's... That's the problem with these systemic issues and these these system-wide issues. And honestly, a a one metric system like money is a little bit too simplistic to uh, to actually uh, to do it. It's better than doing nothing, uh, for sure. And maybe it's a step in the right direction. But I think just saying, well, you know, like you know. Four hundred parts per million is enough uh, is enough carbon, and we just cap and trade and everything. It, it completely is. Uh, it's sort of doomed to fail in a, in a sense. Maybe it's a step in the right direction, but it's not going to solve the problem.
0: Thank you. Are there any more questions? Gibt es noch weitere Fragen aus dem Publikum? Ja. Das schon
2: have uh, two questions on your blockchain project. The first one is, how do you secure the quality of the data in the beginning? So um, do you use standards and how do you really look up at the products? And the second one is, is this an open blockchain or a closed one? So if I would like to buy some gold, can
4: I just join it? So the state of our entire industry Is early, not just my company. So uh, we're not at the point where we've got a system where everyone can go in and buy gold. However, we are built on a public blockchain. Uh, The idea is that different companies should be able to join and there should be no no one person blocking it. So we don't want a monopoly in the industry. We're in a supply chain where it crosses country boundaries, it crosses uh, between competitors. So we wanted to have a system where every big company or every small company would feel comfortable participating together. Um, And in, in essence, the challenge with every supply chain project is securing the data at the beginning. How do you know that the data... Uh, at the beginning that this is responsible or this has good uh, certificates is accurate. And the answer is, although in our pilot projects we are involved, that's not ultimately our job. The, it's We are the connection uh, between the beginning and the end, and we digitize the existing... Certification schemes that these mines go through, so there 's a lot of different ways that that this is done on the mine sites, but at the beginning, like what we 're doing is we 're working with mines that already have non-blockchain certification systems where they're tracking the metal from the hole in the ground, basically, and they've got a record of who was on site, how much is produced at the hole, uh, where it comes out, when the handoff happens, and this is all being tracked, it's being weighed, and those are the companies we want to work with. Uh, You boil the ocean one cup of water at a time, and, and so that's... Essentially, we start there, and then we can move on. But our system is designed that the responsibility is of the people buying the data. Everyone, I don't see the whole supply chain. It's companies who submit their data. And when I'm buying, or when someone else is buying metal, they buy the data along with it. And they buy the data to protect themselves in a way. to To say, well look, I've looked in and made sure I'm responsible. So if there's inaccurate data, it's on them to check. And what we make sure is that whoever signed off on it can't change afterwards. And they so, I'm not sure if that's a good explanation, but more or less.
0: Thank you for the answer. I
4: think there was another question.
0: Behind, no? Okay. Then, uh yeah, another question. Okay. <laughs> Thank
5: you. Um, you were mentioning the problem of of countries, um, particularly uh, maybe Brazil and, and Indonesia and others. How, um, to what extent do you still see potential to use these digi- digital technologies in these um, um,
3: dif- more difficult contexts just to to um, yeah secure forest resources?
5: Gosh, I don't know, (laughs) 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 to be honest. Uh, um, In Terra 1, we don't talk about Brazil or Indonesia. It's really a small-scale project, deeply into the German discussion about wood and all the meaning behind it. But actually, what you are talking about, I think all the tracking systems, you have the potential to change something. But um, on which scale... um, to be honest, I'm completely afraid about the, the um, actual development because when we look at the numbers, there is no way to, to avoid it. So I, I don't know. Maybe someone else has a more positive
4: <laughs> um, I w- meaning I can, about it. If I can say something, I was talking um, a, a few months ago with someone from the Africa Development Bank. And it was interesting seeing sort of their perspective on, uh, on these development issues because they don't see technology as the, as the savior or the solution. What they see is, 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 is it's an enabler of a new way of thinking. So in, in the West, for example, we tend to see blockchain as a way of giving power back to the people because we have strong institutions – and a few billionaires have learned the rules of these institutions and have gamed the system in order to have an unfair advantage. Mm. And then blockchain came along and said, okay, well, we don't need a central bank to trade money, and so this is how we view it, as these crypto-anarchists. But in Africa and in other developing areas of the world, they see it as the opposite. They don't have strong institutions, and... So they see uh, blockchain as creating these immutable records so that billionaires can't go and game their relationships and have corruption. Yeah. So it's sort of like an anti-corruption measures. Same end goal, give power back to the, the, the masses as opposed to the few, but with a completely different approach. Yeah. Now, when we're dealing with the places like Brazil and uh, and the forest, or, or, or Africa and the mines, or Balta- Balkans and, and the rivers, it's the same challenge essentially is that you've got money coming in from powerful players that is gaming a system to have to have uh, unfavorable results that the majority of the population is hurt by. And then the question is how can you get the power back to the masses instead of using it to funnel large amounts of money to the few? And it all comes down to the money in the end. And I think part of it is having a record of who's signing off on these things and having public accountability because it's all, it all comes down to the money. And uh, the technology can enable these anti-corruption measures. They can be a tool for keeping a record of who did what. But we also need these non-technology-based uh, political will to say enough is enough mm-hmm. We want to have a world that we want to live in, and, uh, and maybe it's time to sort of rethink our entire monetary structure of how we incentivize and reward people for doing good or, to, or for living together in harmony instead of uh, for concentrating power in two or three people.
5: That's a link back to the Fridays for Future movement. Um, But maybe one more to your question. I was talking to a woman which is here, I think in the main hall. She's working for the GIZ, the German um, Ministry for International Development. And they do that tracking systems on a global scale, so they are interested in... um, Wow, Landwirtschaft, what is Landwirtschaft without... um, Agriculture. Agriculture without any deforestation. So when you buy something um, on the global scale, so they try to track that. Maybe that's a potential. So the biggest potential I see in the tracking systems. But back to you, um, I think this is the most important question. I think we are on the point where it's really time to talk about values um, behind the digitalization. And the Friday for Future movement, in my point of view, is... um, important um, at the same way important as a discussion about digitalization. They just go through the street and say we are here, you are just um, making us, giving us big, big fear and they are right. Mm.
0: Okay. We would have time for one more question. Yes, okay.
5: Um, you talked about this idea uh, of measuring how much gold is there in the ground. Are there any people trying to pursue that idea already?
4: I don't know. <laughs> I uh, I know the person that... Uh, that has espoused this idea actually is one of our advisors who was formerly the CIO of one of the world's largest gold mining companies. So this is, it's, a, it's an idea that's in the consciousness of the industry. Uh, there are some challenges with it, but I, and I know that it's a popular idea. There's a lot of, the devil's in the details, so I don't know if anyone has taken it up to actually do. Um, but man, that would be exciting, wouldn't it? <laughs>
0: Okay, großes Dankeschön, huge thanks to Anja Steglich, Nathan Williams, Jessica Drushku and Sarah Endira and Jungblut and Marissa, Marissa Pittet. I hope I said it right. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry, one more, one more.
3: I just wanted to invite um, anyone that wanted to become a river intellectual to come talk to me afterwards um, or visit balkanriverdefense.org or if you wanted to attend our student for rivers camp we're extending the deadline so if you're a student or a recent graduate phd um, you're welcome to join thank you <laughs>
2: We for
1: the of the